guys, just really just open up your hearts and uh, allow every word to get in there. It's going to be super important to hear what he has to say. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get a blessing from him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for Jonathan here and just the commitments that he has to you, the faithfulness that he has to you, uh, Father, and just that spirit to serve you and love others every single day. Uh, Father, give him uh, the words and the wisdom uh, to portray your message in a way that touches the hearts of everybody in here and everybody to come. We love you. We praise your son's name. Amen. Man, it is so good being with you guys. Uh, before I get started, I just wanted to commend this, these resources to you of Renew. If you're a parent, this is really, really helpful. Uh, it's just a way of uh, what Christians have done for 2,000 years, which is catechize. That's a word that comes from the Greek word echo, like this echo of the life of Jesus being passed on to the next generation. And then this is just to help you um, go deeper in your faith. It's real life theology. Their resources are really good, and go check out that table. It's, I've been a part of Renew for uh, several years now, and it's one of the ways I got close to the crossings. So I'm very grateful for Renew and commend them to you. Okay, so... We're going to talk about holiness today, and um, if you have any kind of like, I don't know what your take on that word holiness is, but it's something you really, really want. You just might not use that word for it. Uh, when our first daughter was born, my wife uh, had a baby shower, and in it they wrote down memories uh, and a blessing for just Leslie and Eden, the baby that was about to be born. And a, a couple of years later, I found that box of all these women who had written down blessings, and I was, re, I was drinking from an Arkansas Razorback cup, because I'm a huge Razorback fan. I was drinking from an Arkansas Razorback cup that was red, it was like my favorite cup, and I was reading these uh, blessings, and one was from my wife's sister, Jennifer. And it was like, do you remember, you're going to be a great mom, do you remember how a few years ago when my youngest son was in the bathtub and all of a sudden, he pooped in the bathtub. You remember there was that floater, and he was screaming at this thing, and you thought real quick, and you took that red Arkansas Razorback cup, and you yanked it out of the water, and you got rid of it. And I'm reading this, with, and I'm looking at this cup, realizing I didn't know this memory, because that cup was holy. It was not meant to touch unclean things, right? It was used for a specific purpose. And that's really what the word means. It means distinct. It means not like every other thing. It means it's set apart for something else. And one of the problems that Christians in America are facing today is it doesn't seem like Jesus has changed very much. We're just like everybody else. That's why I love coming to this event. You're trying to be holy. You're trying to be different. Sometimes, and when, by the way, when, when that happens, when the church, the bride of Christ is on, she's beautiful. But sometimes church leaders get that wrong. Sometimes we use words like relevance or church, church growth to slowly lower the bar on what it means to follow Jesus. But it's not our bar to lower Everybody gets to decide whether they want to be a part of the kingdom of God, but everybody doesn't get to decide what the kingdom of God means. 
And the word for that, because it's not our kingdom, the word for that is holiness. So this is the passage that we're looking at today. It's Isaiah 52, and this is what it says. As soon as it goes from the God is going to repair all things, worship, praise God for his faithfulness and his goodness, then it says, now depart, go out of there, touch no unclean thing. Sounds abrasive, but if you're holding the Arkansas Razorback Cup, you want there to be a distinction. Come out of it and be pure, you who carry the articles of the Lord's house, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. In other words, you'll never be alone. You're never on your own. The passage from uh, early church planner Paul, he wrote to one of his church planners, one of his disciples, the guys that he had discipled, Titus. And in Titus, he describes this holiness a little bit more um, Explicitly, he says, For the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. It is not exclusive. Everyone has an opportunity for this. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem from us all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I want to show you this. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright. And that's what I want to do today. There are many things that make Christians unique in the world especially if they're following Jesus well. And, and by the way, when you first read this letter, you're like, this guy doesn't get invited to a lot of parties, right? But don't you want this? Don't you want to not just be tossed around by every desire that comes in your mind? Have there ever been moments in your life where you just stopped making sense of your own self? Where you're like, how could I do something like that? And... Paul is saying the grace of God can actually not just forgive you, but you can grow in this. You can become this kind of person. And at first it sounds really regressive and unenlightened and backwards, but I think it's actually beautiful news for those who have ears to hear. Because, and here's the question, I want, I want you to live the kind of life that asks the question of the watching world around you. Because generally when I go to places, I ask, how's life working out for you? How is this low bar of discipleship, of just you know coming to church every now and then when you can, when there's not competing things that are more important, how's this working out for you? Because the problem with today's world, especially um, the younger generation, is joy is so fragile. And part of that's because of the world we swim in. The modern secular world wants you unhappy, bored, and discontent because those are the kind of people that buy stuff. And unhappy, discontent, and bored is exactly who we are. The Gen Z, I have a heart for Gen Z, but you're struggling in so many ways. What I mean by that is I know a lot of parents who say they've tried everything, meds, counseling, therapy, listening, affirmation, care, but as a whole, things seem to be getting worse. And whenever I'm with students, I say, the statistics tell us, like, you're experiencing ex extraordinary levels of anxiety, depression, and loneliness, and it's not because you're unhealthy people in a normal world. 
It's because you're normal people living in an unhealthy world. And the call of Jesus Christ is you don't have to live this way. You can become this kind of man or woman. The word for that is holiness. So uh, let me show you kind of the world that you, you live in. This is when, when you leave church, when you hop on social media, or when you watch Netflix, or you're around, you know, you're in college or whatever. The kind of dominant worldview that you live in says, you know what a human being is worth? About 160 bucks. Uh, I mean, that's your carbon makeup. If you were to just take what you're made of, you're worth about 160 bucks. The scientific worldview, which science is, actually was started by Christians, and it, 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 it's a very good thing, but when it becomes an entire worldview, it bleaches the world of meaning. Let me show you what I mean by this. Here, here's your mom. This is your mom. This is a carbon makeup of your mom. This is your dad. This is your friends. This is you. But is that all you are? Because the world that you're, you live in basically bleaches the world and you of any kind of meaning. And I think it's a lie. And I want to tell you why I think that. So, uh, back in the fourth century, there was this guy named Evagrius who, uh, when everybody was a Christian in Rome, when Constantine became a Christian, um, he thought, you know, where everybody's a Christian, nobody's really a Christian. So he went out into the wilderness to fight the devil, you know, like you do. And after a while, word started getting out. This is a real story. Word started getting out that he was winning. And so people started going to talk to Evagrius, like, how are, you, how are you doing this? How are you living so differently? And eventually, he wrote a book. And this is the title of the book. It's called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons, which is the best subtitle ever, right? How to fight demons. And you, it, you, know, you think like exorcism or how to pray. It, no, it's not, it's not that stuff. What it is, is basically he says, you know, the way Satan gets us is through lies, or thought patterns. And when, when those lies pop in your head, he says, here's what you should do. You should say to yourself, against the lie that, against the lie that, you know, basically all I am is my desires, against the lie that all I am is how I look, um, against the lie that, um, you know, all I am is how much money I have, you should replace that lie with, uh, and most of it was Scripture, and, and the reason he was doing this is because the way human beings become evil is through lies. In fact, Jesus talks about the devil a lot, but he doesn't talk about it the way you think he does. Look at what he says in John chapter 8. You belong to your father. By the way, he's talking to religious leaders, so this is a good way to get killed, Jesus. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When Satan comes at Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he does not come at them with an M16 or a predator drone. He comes at them with a lie, right? Did God really say 
And, and the lies, aren't, the devil's lies aren't just, you know, emotionally neutral with no, you know, kind of tug. He's not coming at you being like, hey, Elvis is still alive. Believe it. No. How about this? You deserve to be happy. And let's face it, you haven't been happy in your marriage for years. You married too young. Or what about this? It's not hurting anyone what I look at on the internet. Or I can quit anytime. Or my body, my choice. These ideas are not new. And I'm just going to, here's what I want to do today. I want you to know that Jesus can be trusted not just with your church attendance or being a part of a, a discipleship group with your entire life. And so I want to take one example because I do think it is an example that the church and the culture are at odds with, although there are several other ones. But I want to take one example and show you because it's the example Titus talks about, about what it means to be holy when it comes to the Lord, specifically our bodies. So there's this time in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus gets um, cornered by the religious leaders about the hot-button issue of his day, marriage and divorce and remarriage. And they come to test him, and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus goes, haven't you read? These people have memorized the Bible. And he's like, you guys read the Bible? Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will live his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, let what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, when these religious leaders come to Jesus, this is environment. I've seen us do this a lot. This is a trap. This is a trap. Trick question. They're trying to trap Jesus. And to the beginning. Notice what he does. He, he retells the story of Genesis. First he does the anthropology. Who human beings are. Then he does the theology. And then he does the commandment. So in order to be like Jesus. I want to do that today. Because here's what I know about you. No matter how invested you are in church or in the way of Jesus. You live in a world where you're constantly hearing a certain kind of anthropology or thinking about what a human being is and what a human body is. So I want to tell you what you are constantly hearing, but probably not all at once like this. So first off, the secular story about what human beings are. Human beings are just animals, number one. We're just animals, we're primates with apes, we're apes with time and chance on our side. Number two, human nature is, it just is, there's no meaning or purpose to the human body, to gender or sexuality other than evolutionary function and propagation of the species. Number four, male-female sex is just plumbing, that's all it is. Number five, gender is just social construct, it's imaginary, it's often developed by the patriarchy to oppress women and, um, or older women to oppress younger women. Number six, sex is just play for grown-ups. That's all it is. It's a biological release. And love is a feeling of happiness you get from uh, being with another person or it's a desire, a sexual desire for another person. Number seven, marriage. It's just a social construction from around the Byzantine era, often to do with tribal alliance, commerce, uh, patriarchy, oppression of women and children. Monogamy is not natural. You don't see it that often in nature. In fact, nature has um, 
not designed, evolved the male body to where the goal is to get his sperm into as many different women as possible. Number eight, the purpose of marriage, now that the earth is overpopulated and we know better than like God and religion and those kind of things, is happiness if marriage even has a purpose. And if you're into marriage, great. If it's same sex, different sex, many partners, whatever, you do you. And if you're not into marriage, no worries. There's plenty of other options for your sexuality. Divorce, or as Gwyneth Paltrow recently put it, conscious uncoupling is the enlightened decision that a couple make who grow out of love with one another, or one grows out of love with the other. Because again, the point of marriage is happiness. So if you're not happy in a marriage as defined by you, then you know you do you. And if there's kids, man, that stinks, but uh, they need to see you being true to yourself. What about the Bible? Because the Bible is what a lot of like Western culture is built on. Yeah, um, big fans of the Bible. Um, but... It's also got a lot, it's got some great ideas, but it also has a lot of sexism, racism, patriarchal oppression, anti-erotic ideas about sex, and any and all forms of external authority are oppressive if they're imposed on you by somebody else, and repressive if you accept them on yourself. So keep your ideas off my body, politician, pastor, parent. The overall meaning in life? Well, if we're honest, technically there is none. Life is a glorious or not so glorious accident, depending on how much money you have. There's no creator, which means there's no creation. All we're left with is nature, which means there's no design with intent. There's just, you know, red and tooth and claw. And so now that we have an earth that's full, feel free to come up with something, uh, whatever meaning you have that you want for your life. Ideally, something to do with progress, because come on, that ties into evolutionary theory, and hey, we're all kind of good people. Um, We want to make the world a better place, but we don't want God to impede our progress to a world where there's no racism, sexism, and where we upload to the cloud and live forever as homo deus. This idea of God is a dead weight holding us back from enlightenment now. And if you can't give, come up with a cause to give your life to, that's okay. We got lots of prescription medicine, great food, lots of entertainment. Just hang out with your friends, enjoy your life, and swipe right while it lasts. Okay. So that's my take on telling a story that you hear a thousand different times in many versions throughout your months. And if it sounds a little bleak or jarring, then let me just play a song for you. I found this last year. It's a guy, Ian McConnell, who grew up Christian. He uh, calls this song, Two Years of Deconstruction in Two and a Half Minutes. The song is important. If you could play that. I'm pretty sure that life doesn't have a meaning. Then he doesn't look like me And I'm just a member of the current apex species But there will be another when the humans go extinct We've only been around 200,000 years I'm 13 and a half billion years How can we think the pinnacle is here? Isn't that arrogant? There's a couple hundred billion trillion suns And we act like it all was made for us There ain't no way that we're the only ones I'm not important So let's do whatever we want to do. That's 
risking our cosmic insignificance. So cut this blip we're living in, 'cause nothing matters anyway. Isn't that great? This is under, you know, so much of the stuff that we、uh, watch, listen to. Our hearts and our desires are being formed by this. It's in our movies, our sitcoms,、uh, a post from Instagram, a conversation with a coworker, almost everything on TikTok. And it's easy to assume this is reality when you hear certain pieces of this. I would argue it's a story. It's a story of reading the kind of data points of science and history and religion and the human experience. And here's what I want to ask you: Is it a good story? Is it a true story? We're only 60 years into this way of thinking, and we're just now starting to reap the consequences. How do we think it's going? Maybe Titus has a point. Maybe holiness really can be beautiful. Now, listen. There are people today in our world that are、uh, claimed to be Christians, but they're hateful and they're unkind. And just because somebody claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they are, because real Christians don't hate anybody. Not anybody who has a body, because and this is the Christian vision of what holiness in your body looks like. Let's all say this together: God made your body, and your body is good. Let's say this together: God made your body, and your body is good. That's not just like a cute saying. That's core to Christianity 101. You are unrepeatable. You are not just the sum of your carbon elements. You are made in the image of God. You are important, and your life matters. God made you in love, for love. Love is your destiny and your origin. God doesn't hate anybody. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God hates sin, not people, and God's people shouldn't hate people either. Because the Christianity for two thousand years has said the core of Christianity is creation is good, and God made us as the apex of it in His image, and God became one of us. The incarnation, the resurrection. There is a God. In heaven right now, with a human body, with a belly button, just like you, that is insane to me. There is not other world religions that claim things like that. When God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven with a human body. So we don't think human beings are just animals. We we don't think that we're just machines, which is what the Enlightenment said for like three hundred years. Like we're just basically a brain on the stick, and our body is incidental. We're not just a soul in the prison. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies, and God will resurrect your actual body. You know that the body you have now it will be transformed, but it will still be your body, just like God did for Jesus. And so we submit our bodies to the lordship of Jesus Christ because you didn't make your body. You received it. It is a gift. It is your identity. It is core to your identity. It will be transformed. It will be healed. But it is core to your identity. You didn't make your body. You don't sustain your body, and you won't resurrect your body. Your body is a gift, fundamental to who you are, and. People in America who are becoming post-Christian are so confused right now, and people in churches that don't have a high view of discipleship are so confused right now because we, you know, come to church and we sing some songs and we hear maybe a sermon or a class every now and then, but then we watch that movie on Disney Plus or Netflix or we watch Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, and we hear very different stories 
about who human beings are. And so we're told to have any kind of like convictions or believe that, you know, your body has a purpose and a meaning. Is a, you can be accused of being a bigot or being hateful. And Titus says, God's grace appears with its own instruction. I want to teach you how to, and, and, and he says, God wants, by the grace of God, wants to teach you how to live um, in restraint to your desires. Okay, so if you'll stick with me for the next 20 minutes, this can change your life. It's deep, but it can change your life. I'm saying that because it's changed mine. Because I want you to see what God says about your body. If you got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2 starting in verse 15. So uh, Genesis 1 is a 50,000 foot view of creation. Genesis 2 is kind of the zoom in, closer up thing of it. Same, same creation, just told closer up. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. But the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from that, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep while he was still sleeping, and he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, if this isn't a little bit weird to you, it's because you must have been in church a lot. Because if you're first reading this for the first time, it's super bizarre. God makes Adam, and then all of a sudden there's an episode of the Discovery Channel that happens. Like God parades all the animals past Adam and is like, hey, why don't you name these? And by the way, you're looking for a partner. <laughs> what? Why is God doing this? Okay, this is so good, y'all. The reason you think human beings are um, the, the pinnacle of God's creation is because of this right here. Um, that when God shows Adam, and, shows Adam the animals, He's showing him, you're not like everyone else. Right? And by the way, when He's Adam here, He's not male. That word man does not mean male. It means human. God has not yet split the gender uh, into two. And so God puts Adam to sleep, separates him, and then he sees Eve and breaks into poetry as he sees a naked woman for the first time. Now, here's what... So what does Adam have that, human, that other animals don't? Freedom. This is really big because for the last couple hundred years, and this is really big in, in the secular West, Sigmund Freud whose ideas have largely been discredited, but many of his ideas are just the air you swim in. Sigmund Freud's greatest idea that has got in the culture is this. Male sexual desire cannot be restrained. If it's restrained, it's neurotic. So, fellas, if you can't say no, what does your yes mean? 
And that's Sigmund Freud. I think he's wrong. Christianity, there's a historian. I'm looking to see if there's a lot of kids. Yeah, there are. I won't say that part. But um, Christianity for 2,000 years has, has had a high bar for men on how they treat women and how they respond to their desires. And in his freedom, Adam is realizing, I'm different than the other animals. And that means when he sees Eve, he can offer himself as a gift, not as a compulsion. She can offer herself as a gift. So my wife and I have chickens, um, and I don't know about you, but uh, if you've been around chickens, they're super stupid, right? Um, we actually have a rooster. Our first rooster uh, we had to kill. His name was Peter. We had to kill because he attacked a kid, and then we got another rooster, and his name is Second Peter. But here's the thing. <laughs> That's true. That's really his name. Um, but here's the thing about chickens. Like, all of God's creatures deserve respect, but there is a distinct difference between a human being and a chicken. You can cut off a chicken's head, and it doesn't know it. It keeps on running. Like, there's a unique status that God gave Adam and Eve. Why does God give Adam and Eve freedom? Because Adam was called to love, and without freedom, love is impossible. And so in this moment, Adam realizes that love is his origin, his calling, and his destiny. By the way, when I say love is his origin, everybody touch your belly button. Your body bears witness to you coming from love. And I know there's a lot of complications and a lot of stories that maybe make you push against this, but probably for the most part, most of us came from love. Love is our calling and our destiny. And then when God, when, they, when Adam and Eve, it's in the Hebrew, it's ish and isha. Let me hear you say ish and isha. Like male and female. The creation of male and female is supposed to be the binaries of all these, you know, day and night and land and, and um, sea. And when he sees Eve... He knows, oh, this is something else. He, he, uh, the, the word there it, for, to describe her is that she is opposite and like at the same time. Let me explain it to you like this. A man's body doesn't make sense by itself. A woman's body doesn't make sense by itself. They were made for each other. Not, and by the way, Christianity has uh, historically prized singleness, like even above marriage, because marriage points to Genesis, singleness points to Revelation, to being a part of the bride of the body of Christ. But a man's body doesn't make sense by itself. Put another way, a man's body is complete with regard to all systems except one. A woman's body is complete in regard to all systems except one. Their bodies were made as a way to image something about God. God made our body and our body is good. So do you know what it means that your actual body is made in the image of God? Because it doesn't just, it's not just a cute thing that we say for Hobby Lobby to put on some sign. And it matters because I think everybody here on some level has some shame about our body. I'm, I'm not sure what yours is. I know what mine is. But here's what it means to say you're made in the image of God. It means literally you show the world what God is like. So, since there's so much shame around our body, I want you to imagine what it, feel, what it must have felt like for them to both be naked and feel no shame. Here's the best way I know how to describe it. 
If you're taking a shower and you're alone, you don't feel shame. But if a stranger comes in, what would you immediately do if you were taking a shower? You'd cover up. You know why you'd cover up? Because you inherently know that your body is good and it's not meant to be used and objectified by somebody else. Now, if you flip that, that's what they felt as they were standing in front of each other. They knew their bodies were good and they were able to offer themselves as gifts to other people. And do you know what Christians have historically called when they give their body to one another in love, not of compulsion, uh, but as a gift? you know what Christians historically have called a husband and wife doing that? Communion. (laughs) Some of you are like, all right, he's gone off the deep end. Get the kids, let's go. But no, listen, you know this is true, right? Paul uses this language in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about a husband and wife. Jesus uses this at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He uses wedding language of a groom uh, praying, uh, paying a bridal price for his wife. The marriage, historically, is the small institution and the church is the large institution that are both telling parables of the love of God. And here's what makes this significant. Listen, all animals mate. Only human beings can offer communion to one another. And here's where things get so good. In the course of natural events, when a man and woman have communion together, they create a third. Just like the image of God, this three-in-one God. In other words, y'all, listen to this. The genders are not competitive. That's a... That's a lie. The genders in their ideal state are generative. We are making in the image of God. And the reason um, Christians have historically talked about um, sex not being just bodily instincts, like, oh, I I gotta do that, is because we are imaging the very inner life of God. When a man and woman in a marriage covenant make love, they're actually making something. Just like the inner life of this three-in-one God who's always self-emptying, always self-donating, always giving, always receiving, always other-centered and generous. Now, people can disagree with that. You can say that's oppressive and regressive or whatever, but at least you now know what it is because that is what historically Christians have believed. You can be post-Christian, but at least you know what it is you're walking away from. Christians don't hate anybody. At least we're not supposed to. Not anybody who has a body. Because in the words of the New Testament, we have no enemies with flesh and blood. Our enemies are the principalities and powers. And said positively, here's the way the Apostle John says this. And guys, this is so good. Look at what he says. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, if you could put that up. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen, cannot love God who they have not seen. In other words, your body... And only the human body can make the invisible visible. Your body shows the world what God is like. To quote Darth Vader, search your heart. You know this is true. You are not just meat. 
You're not just a machine. People aren't just means to an end. You are worth more than your world tells you. In fact, you are worth more than you know. Not because of any, but because God in His great sovereign grace saw fit to make us and us alone in His image. This is why school shootings bother us so much. This is why secular atheists, when they look at the Holocaust, they say that's evil, even if they struggle to figure out why. It's why we know in our bones sexual abuse is different than physical abuse. And, and no matter who you are, you're probably concerned about what pornography is doing to our souls or our children's souls. I like the way Pope John Paul II says this. The problem with... The, there is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but too little. The problem with the secular view of the body is that it separates the soul from the body, and the word for that is death. The secular world says that your body is insignificant. Literally, it doesn't signify anything. So what about you? What do you think your body means? From the New Testament, it talks so much about very specific things in the body. In fact, does anybody speak sign language here? Anybody? Do you know the um, sign for circumcision? No, no, it's the person behind you. <laughs> this is not an auction, sir. You did not just win, an, win a bid. You're like, no, no, no. It's a, the, the joy you're looking for not here. Uh, does anybody know sign language? Do you know the sign for circumcision? Yeah, can you do that? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so at one point, I was teaching this at the church I'm at, and this woman came up to me hot because her family has some deaf people in it, and the sign language, I kept saying the word circumcision, and that kept making that over and over again, and she was like, this is, we have children, this is really explicit, and the reason that sign is so disturbing is because it makes the invisible visible, Right? It's very explicit, and I like that so much because your New Testament talks like that. Your Bible talks like that because your physical body, including your spousal parts, are actually telling a story, and they're a story that you really um, should pay attention to because Christianity has really said this for 2,000 years. The part of the point is we try to make this like a, a, a you know, just like kind of... Um, a metaphor, and it's not just a metaphor. It's a physical reality that points to an ultimate reality. So, um, love is hard. Real love is hard. I remember the first time I saw a picture of a naked woman. I was 13 years old. I went home with a friend uh, from church, and we were playing video games, and he pulled out a Playboy, and I, he showed it to me, and I was immediately like, ugh, and, and looked away, and then I looked back. And I, I've told my kids this, because the average age of viewing something like that these days is 10 to 11 years old. I've told my kids, there will come a time when you see something and it's going to make you feel bad, and then good, and then bad again. And when you, feel, when you see that, you're going to feel embarrassed and shame. I want you to come talk to me, because I have felt that before. Later on, when I was a teenager, me and some buddies were walking to the gas station to get... Uh, Coke, and we saw some uh, magazines, and we did what teenage boys tend to do. We took those magazines, and we hid them and took care of them like the Dead Sea Scrolls. But now, the world that my kids are living in, that I'm living in, it's really hard not 
to be addicted to porn. Uh, University of Montreal, about 14 years ago, tried to do a study on the effects of pornography on men, and they had to cancel the study because they could not find enough men who did not look at porn. In fact, at the end of that, they said, we've concluded that men who look at pornography regularly do not exist. A lot of the people that I work with in pastoral ministry, a lot of guys that I work with crave pornography, but they hate it. And so here's a word of grace for you, because I, I, I live in the same world you live in. Um, every Christian man I know and lots of Christian women struggle with this. But we are one of the few groups in the world that are struggling. We're fighting it. We're resisting it. Um, porn is never just about the pictures. It's about every single person on there is someone's sister, husband, cousin, son, nephew, niece, mother. Every one of them stands in human relation to the world and to God. And the problem with pornography is not that it reveals so much, but that it doesn't reveal very much at all, of who a person really is. And the reason this is so strong, and this is how the grace of God today can instruct you in how to live holy in this way. I really do think this. This can change your life. I promise you on this. The reason it's so strong is because you're not searching for just getting off. What you're searching for is God. Uh, there's a, a guy named G.K. Chesterton who says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is searching for God. And by the way, to grow in this, you, you have to learn how to grow, like Titus says, in self-control. So whenever young guys come to me and tell me that they're struggling with pornography, I, tell, I counsel them to fast from food. Like, pick a day, pick a couple of days, fast from food so that you can strengthen that not doing muscle. So you can learn by not eating that potato chip how to say no to your desires when they come. And we need to practice those muscles because I think we can see how much our world needs this, how much our families need this. But the deeper, better way to do this is not to just dampen your desires, to chase them all the way to the end. So in the Gospel of John, which is really like a love letter to the world in Jesus Christ, there's this time where Jesus comes upon this well in Samaria and there's this woman that's there, and she sits down with Jesus, and he asked her for a drink. Um, and she says, how are you talking to me? You're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't get along, in other words. And he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink, because I could give you water that would make you never thirsty again. And she says, sir, God, water that would quench my thirst? I would love that. Where can I get this? And he says, go get your husband. She's like, oh, man, I can't believe he brought that up. She's like, actually, I'm not married. And he's like, you're right, you're not married. You've been married five times, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I can see that you're um, a prophet and uh, nosy. <laughs> and I love this story because... She asked Jesus, give me living water that will quench what I'm really thirsty for. And a lot of people think Jesus just changes the subject. But he's not. He's trying to show her where she's going to get her thirst met right now. And for a lot of us, this is it. 
What you really want is God. And the reason you're so attracted to them, the reason you find it so compelling is because you're searching for something. You're searching for that God who they're made in the image in. So when I was a teenager, I started Every Man's Battle, which is a, you know, a way of like bouncing your eyes. Anybody read that? Yeah, just a way of bouncing your eyes, like looking away, all this. And, and maybe that's needed for the season that you're in, but there's a greater way, and I've discovered it, and this is what I meant with it changed my life. If you can get to the point where you see someone who is beautiful and attractive, and you chase the sunbeam back to the sun, and you thank God for making people, there's another possibility. There's a, um, a parable about these two priests who are walking down the street and there's this scantily clad prostitute that walks by and one of the priests tur- bounces their eyes, turns away, right? And the other priest doesn't. He continues to stare. And the priest who turn- turned uh, his eyes turns around and was like, hey, dude. And when the person turns his head back, his eyes are, have tears running down his face. And he says, how tragic that such beauty is being sold to the use of men. And maybe for some of us, we need to do that first one today. Like Job says, we need to take custody of our eyes. We need to make a covenant not to look lustfully, which is a word that means use, to use someone else. Because that's the opposite of love. It's not hate, it's use. Maybe we need to make a covenant with our D groups, with our life groups, get real honest about what we're going through. But that second priest, that second priest had, was on to something. And that wasn't a parable. That was a true story. It's a true story of St. Nonus of Edessa. And that prostitute's name was Pelagia. And she noticed it. Because men didn't look at her like that. Men looked at her to use. He looked at her with love. And she started talking to him. And today she is known as St. Pelagia of Antioch. Listen, whenever you talk about stuff like this, there's shame, right? This is one of the reasons we don't talk about it much in church. But there is a way that grace can instruct us to live in our body and recognize the inherent goodness and dignity and full image bearer of God that we are and give us eyes to see that in others. And there's a way that all the shame that we have, because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, we can live differently with that. Because I know in this room, we've all got failures. We've all got memories we wish we didn't have. Every one of us knows what it's like to use others and be used by others. And so tonight or today, I want to give you a word of the grace of God in all our sinful searches. What you were really searching for really was God. And when we feel shame, the best word I know is what Titus said. The Lord Jesus Christ bought us. And if you have shame, the most gospel word I know for you is this. Do you know Jesus died naked? We put loincloths on the paintings of the crucifixion because we want to add reverence to the most irreverent moment in human history. 
Jesus died naked, crucified by Romans as a circumcised Jewish male. So what do you think they're pointing and making fun of? Jesus endured the shame and scorn of the cross. There is no place you can hit that is rock bottom, that is too far away from what Jesus has gone through for us. What you're always searching for, your deepest desires are for God. And God is not this finger wagging, I'm so disappointed, how dare you. God is the one who talked to the Samaritan woman who wants to feel your thirst. And I'm convinced that the reason people do so much of what they do is because we're thirsty. Wouldn't it be great to get living water that could really quench Because when the church is on, when she submits to this king and this kingdom, isn't she beautiful? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this collection of churches and disciples and disciples making disciples. I pray that this would land in the hearts of those who need it that whatever action steps need to be taken in our own families, in our own church families, in our own small groups, that we will, as we realize we are searching for you, that we've always been searching for you. Father, we submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit. We want to become holy. We want to be, said another way, full of joy, full of self-control, full of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And Father, we trust you. We submit to you. We want you to give us eyes to see in the mirror correctly, that we will not base our value on what the scale says, or what the season of life we're in says, or what people say about our attractiveness or non-attractiveness, but that we will recognize that you made our body and our body is good, and that we are image bearers May we see that in other people. Give us great joy in this high calling you have given us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.